lately I've been thinking about how when I post a successful Instagram post online, I start to feel better. Like when there's a lot of likes rolling in, I, my brain just starts feeling happier. Or likewise, when I'm texting somebody and they don't respond, I start to feel more depressed. <laughs> and this didn't used to be the case. I think that, you know, the way that social media is programmed these days actually rewards our bodies with dopamine. There's a lot of articles about this on the internet, and there's a lot of strategies that are put in place for these tech companies to make us feel a certain way. So, you know, I wanted to bring an artist on the podcast who's dealing with just these kind of concepts, who's really examining the impact of technology and culture on our identity. Annie Liu is an artist whose work imbues scientific processes with storytelling, narrative, and emotional expression to explore themes of the subconscious, longing, nostalgia, and memory. She asks the question, in this technologically mediated age, what does it mean to be human? Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Gabe. Thanks so much for having me. So what's going on? What, how have you been lately? So I am currently 38 weeks pregnant. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and as an artist that works with bio and technology, it's been like a really eye-opening, uh, transformative experience. And are you making work based on this whole experience yourself? <laughs> yep. I couldn't not make work about it, I think. Um, let's see where to begin. You know, so many aspects of um, pregnancy touched upon so many themes that were already in my work that I found so fascinating. Um, I think to start, you know, just lots of biopolitics, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, early on in my first trimester when I was feeling really ill a lot, I kept researching artificial wombs, <laughs> like oh, what wow. would... <laughs> Um, how would it impact females to liberate them from the labor of reproduction? And would that make the society more equitable? Or is, you know, gender equality all about recognizing the inherent differences in gender? Mm. So I went, like, totally down this rabbit hole of, of um, feminist technologies. And um, it's funny because the more I talk to other women about the idea of an artificial uterus, um, actually the more women told me stories about how much, despite how inconvenient um, pregnancy is in many ways, how much they felt like it was a very instrumental biological part of um, them feeling very bonded to their, to their children and, or, you know, their future child. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've been, paying attention a lot to my own body and thinking a lot about how what is happening to me physiologically is impacting me psychologically. So I've been making a lot of pieces that kind of um, instrumentalize these these uh, changes because, you know, I was sitting there thinking about how I'm feeling contractions and shortness of breath and like literally pee myself when I laugh too hard <laughs> and how that like promotes patience and humility and all these kind of changes in my identity and mood and then I was kind of looking over at my husband and he's drinking a beer watching tv and I was like what about, <laughs> what about his body you know like how is, right. how is he being prepared for parenthood um so almost like in the beginning a type of kind of um coping tongue-in-cheek um building I, I made him a set of devices to allow him to feel some of the things I was feeling um mm-hmm. including a uh, wearable that allows him to feel contractions and and fetal kicks and a pair of underwear that um, causes him to wet himself if he sneezes too hard. (laughs) Um, And all of these pieces will be at 
uh, showing at Chandran Gallery in San Francisco for the Festival of Impossible next week. So I'm Oh, wow. Fantastic. So if you're in San Francisco, you can go check that out. Um, I have a piece there, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of randomly. Um, but, so wait, is your husband wearing these devices that you've created? It was interesting because um, in the past, every wearable that I make, I test. But with these pieces, I was too nervous to feel like I didn't want to put electrodes on my belly when there's a little person growing inside of there. Mm -hmm. So he's been wearing them, but I don't know how authentic they feel. Um, and I must admit, given how not uncomfortable he is, I feel like they're not truly hitting the mark. Right. Um, but yes, they were made for him, but he hasn't had a lot of time to wear it because they were made for the show. <laughs> right. No, that, <laughs> ex that makes sense. Out. Yeah. And you, you do a lot of work in what you call uh, cultural prosthetics. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what a cultural prosthetic is? Yeah. Um, the term, I think, comes from Krzysztof Woditsko, who's another media artist that uh, makes a lot of work about war and, and marginalized populations. Um, when I talk about cultural prosthetics, I think of, let's see, how do I talk about this? Um, I don't know, I guess when I think of prosthetics, for instance, I think of all of the things, like not just like the typical prosthetic that you might think of, like an arm mm -hmm. that um, might aid in someone who's damaged their own arm, but like everything from contact lenses that you might not even consider something artificial to as something as ubiquitous as your cell phone, um, things that, you know, extend your memory, um, emotional capacity. Um, I think of all of these objects that we so intimately live with, but because they're so ubiquitous, they kind of fall into the backdrop. So, the term cultural prosthetics for me um, includes all of these things kind of made into an art form to heighten your awareness of how, what your relationship might be to them. Mm -hmm. So would uh, your piece, Real Virtual Feelings, would you call that as part of this cultural prosthetic uh, canon? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, you're not wearing it necessarily, but can you right. describe the piece a little bit? So, um, yes. So for that piece, I tried to calculate um, the exact amount of dopamine that your brain releases every time you get a like on social media. <laughs> and that that in itself was like a whole journey. And it turns out it's really difficult to precisely measure such things. But um, the, the impetus for that project came because I was really interested in the kind of conversations that people have when it comes to um, what is real and biological and what is virtual and digital. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about how, you know, social media likes and so much of life occurs virtually or, or on screens, but they actually have a very real conduit to um, our biological selves. So like, things that you experience, quote unquote, virtually still have biochemical realities <laughs> in many ways in your own brain. And so I wanted to call that out by creating a little circuit, like a digital to biological circuit um, that spoke to this relationship. Um, and it turns out it's a complicated question. It's like right. I actually talked to a lot of neuroscientists to try to measure um, and calculate this out. And it turns out that it's very nuanced and might vary from person to person, but 
I'm really interested in this like notion of how the virtual impacts the biological. Yeah. I mean, I feel that whenever I <laughs> post something that gets some attention, I, I, it's bizarre because uh-huh. I don't want to feel that way. Like I don't want to be a, somebody who's stuck to, and, and relying on the, uh, the likes to make me feel good, but I, my body reacts still. Um, and yeah, I think totally. it's, it's interesting that you presented it as the sculpture, uh, real virtual feelings where it's sort of a vitrine or almost like a aquarium looking piece um, with a bag and in that bag, is it dopamine in the bag? I mean, how do you synthesize dopamine in that way? So you can buy it. Um, well, you have to have a special license to buy it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so in the sculpture, so the sculpture is made as a kind of pseudo self-portrait. Um, as you said, it's in a tank or a vitrine. Um, the size of that vitrine is the exact volume of my body. So Mm -hmm. if you were to like blend me up in a blender and poured me into a rectangle, um, that's the volume that it would be. And it's exactly (laughs) at my height. Um, and the whole thing kind of looks like, maybe a different sort of television set. So I really wanted to play with um, the kind of visual media. Like it looks like an old fashioned, maybe like television box because it's so boxy. Um, And then within that larger pseudo screen is a smaller screen that's submerged in liquid because I really at that time was thinking of myself as a wet machine. And I was really interested Mm. in seeing electronics submerged in liquids because it makes me so uncomfortable, you know, like every time if I drop my phone in the sink or something, like it's like this immediate, like it's almost visceral, like my own body got burned or something. Um, And so actually behind that um, whole setup where the microcontroller and the the screen is submerged in a liquid um, is a very small vial of of dopamine and the as i said i was trying to calculate how much it was but i think actually the amount that would be released per like is like not visible to the eye so i had to um take some artistic license in the kind of um aesthetic communication of it right yeah that yeah. makes sense um in this piece would you say it's about social media then i mean is it about simulations in social media like how we are sort of portraying ourselves in order to get this biological feedback? Mm, I think it is. And forgive me, you know, a lot of these works are so new that I think I'm still kind of synthesizing myself. So I'm kind of like thinking out loud. That's Um, great. But the, I think the piece itself, there were a few things that I was thinking a lot about that year. I was thinking, you know, can I be flattened into an algorithm (laughs) like Mm. am i so simple as a loop like if like then dopamine release then addiction um and continue this because at the time i was also you know um i was thinking a lot about weirdly i was thinking a lot about this thing called um a supernormal stimuli and i don't know if this is like a real scientific theory but someone at the time was telling me about how there's a certain kind of beetle that was going extinct because their um, evolutionary impetus was to mate with things that are the reddest and the roundest and Hmm. all of these beetles started mating with coca-cola bottle caps instead of each other (laughs) because they (laughs) were the reddest roundest things And um, there's like a whole slew of things, not just these beetles, but in nature where um, certain, you know, artifices in the environment has caused certain animals evolutionary loops to go out of whack. And of course, humans too, right? Like we struggle with obesity or porn addiction or social media addiction. And so I was thinking about like, 
you know, sometimes accidentally and sometimes not so accidentally, we, the virtual stimulation is so like on point to our biological ancient circuits that we totally get skewed. And then I, I was also a little bit disturbed, like, Am I so simple like that beetle <laughs> right. that I can be hacked? And of course, I think marketing companies spend billions of dollars every year making sure you can be hacked. Um, and then it became more interesting to me, too, when I was talking to brain scientists um, and the way they understood both mice and potentially some hum- some aspects of being human in these kind of reductive loops. Um, and so that piece, I was kind of thinking about this a lot, like, what is my relationship to simulations? What is real? What is virtual? And does it matter if the same molecule gets released in my brain when presented with these stimuli? Um, so I was kind of asking these questions. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of perfume, which is basically designed to hack your biology, right? There's so many different ways people respond to scents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you work with scents a lot in your work as well. I mean, I'm thinking of your piece, Laboratory of Longings, mm-hmm. uh, which has a lot to do with smell, human smells. Uh, can you describe how this piece is set up a little bit and what the inspiration was for it? Yeah. So a few years ago, um, I became really interested in genetic engineering because CRISPR was all over the news and I was like super naive and really like learning about it from the ground up. And I was learning about how we have been genetically engineering a lot of crops like corn, um, not just for like nutrition or often not for nutrition at all, but for very commercial commodifiable attributes like shelf life or transportability or even like how easy they are to stack or like whether their reproduction can be patented so that the farmer has to buy new seeds every year. And I was like, wow, that's, that's so crazy that we are engineering another organism just for these very capitalist ends. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I was like, can I use the same tools that they use to make, you know, something very, emotional um can i use genetic engineering for art and so at the time i I like for some reason what came to me was i really want to engineer a plant that smells like someone i loved and lost you know um my grandmother is very old and i was like what if i could uh, grow a flower that smells like her so that i could remember her in this very visceral sensorial way forever i love that Um, that's that's beautiful. Uh, thanks. It's it's very polarizing. Some people are like that is the most beautiful thing ever, and some people are like that is literally the creepiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I find things a little bit. I'm kind of somewhere in in the middle of creepy and beautiful. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, were you able to engineer that flower? Like, what was that process like? So Did I you spent two years working with um, a chemist and a biologist, and uh, ultimately it failed as a project. Um, mm-hmm. I was told that it would probably cost a few hundred million dollars and maybe. Oh. 10 more years of research. Um, But I learned a lot along the way. Um, I learned a lot about genetics and and, um, what makes people smell the way they do, which is incredibly complicated, Um, has everything to do with your medications to like literally uh, natural biological processes, like whether you're menstruating and whether you wear perfume and deodorant and all of this. Mm. Um, But at the time I was doing a lot of about carnivorous plants because I thought, you know, some carnivorous plants already produce uh, rotting flesh smells to attract prey. So I was like, maybe that's an easier circuit to hack. Um, 
So Laboratory of Longings is a kind of performance immersive sculpture where I was trying to express all of these frustrations and longings that I had working in a real laboratory with these scientists trying to create this project. And um, the way it looks is it's... um, it looks like maybe like two rectangles stacked on top of each other. Um, mm-hmm. On the top is kind of this greenhouse with uh, heat lamps. And I was casting couples <laughs> uh, on Craigslist. And I literally, the only requirement was I wanted to find a couple that was really in love to be present with each other um, and to sweat. So they could do everything from just look at each other um, to making out, to cuddling, to like having sex. And while they're in this um, greenhouse being present with each other, they're sweating profusely because of the heat lamps and they're laying on a bed of funnels that's collecting all of their sweat. Um, And these funnels have these tubes that, and all they sweat is like feeding these carnivorous plants. And in some of the carnivorous plants are atomizers in which their sweat is then diffused into the air. So the audience is inhaling um, the smell of this couple. And, you know, like when I was doing research on smells, I, I really felt in love with it, like for so many reasons, one of which is that we actually don't know a lot about smell scientifically. It's really hard to study. So there's still a lot of mystery. Um, And secondly, like, you know, unlike when you see something where a photon of light hits that thing and reflects off of it and like, you know, wavelengths go into your retina and you kind of create the hallucination of that thing. Uh, When you smell something, a molecule of that substance actually binds to your receptor in your nose. So it becomes a part of you. (laughs) And I love the idea that this, couple in the throes of their intimacy becomes a part of you like you're you're literally inhaling them um and what was the reaction like what was the uh, the visitor's reaction to this piece i mean do they were they distracted by the couple you know maybe having sex in the box above them Uh or they or they really just inhaling the smell and kind of reacting to that i mean i'm i haven't seen it in person but i'm really curious what the reaction was like it was really special. I mean, I guess that's kind of a conceited thing to say as the artist. But <laughs> no, it, it sounds amazing. I, I, I want to. I'd love to experience it. It's really interesting because I think we have we consume so many. Um, I guess inadvertently going back to the theme, we consume so many simulated versions of intimacy, right? Like from romantic comedies to like movies to pornography, often. I think the kind of intimacy we see is over the top or in, or enacted in a certain way. And because these were like completely just amateur people off the street who happened to love each other, it was really, I, I thought it was really enthralling just to watch people who weren't acting um, be present because I, I love seeing like all of these kind of inadvertent moments where your body just kind of communicates like subconsciously. Um, and then the smelling, right? The smelling is so interesting because I feel like in our culture, we tend to sanitize so much, so much smells, right? Like um, we have so many deodorants and, and air purifiers and all of this. So I thought it was really interesting to see them in this box, which kind of, again, looks like some kind of TV stage theater thing, but then even though they're all in, in closed in plastic, you're 
smelling them in this very intimate way. So I, I would say it was really, it was really lovely because everyone was very quiet. Um, it's, mm-hmm. It felt like being in a church, <laughs> like everything is murmured and hushed and um, maybe also kind of like a church. There's, there was a very distinct smell in the air that really charged the atmosphere. Um, like a human incense kind of. Yeah, 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 exactly. And there's a little bit of misting because of the atomizers. Um yeah, I don't know. It was like, again, it was a piece that got shown like literally the day I finished. <laughs> so yeah, as like, is common so, for most artists. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was like this really intense, like I was seeing it for the first time. The audience was seeing it for the first time. Um, yeah. I don't it's know, a, it's a bit of a ceremony. Like, I mean, I feel like there's a ceremony or performance element to a lot of your work. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's, you know, I'm thinking about your other pieces like... Um, maybe inductive spa, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we look at these pieces and we think, Oh, is this a performance? Like, is the participant in on this? How do you make work that's designed for somebody to experience it in a performative nature? Uh, mm. Like how, how much control do you have over that work? Like, can you mm. talk about effective induction in spa as a sort yeah. of example of that? That's such a good question. So affective induction spa was uh, made with a bunch of friends from MIT, um, the group was ranging from visual artists to musicians to neuroscientists to electronic engineers. Um, there was very diverse. And we were like just super lucky and got a commission from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts for one of their events. So it was like a fancy donor party event. Hmm. Um, and again, at the time, I was still in this kind of like neuroscience soup where I was thinking about whether like humans could be programmed so specifically i was like um can can you program happiness into someone so we looked at a whole but we like collected a whole bunch of studies that all had to do with happiness so like specific wavelengths of light that you could be exposed to every day like a happy lamp that could increase serotonin output and happiness like um there's a list of 100 words that are the most affectively like positively rated um there's specific um electric signals that you can pass across your forehead that's supposed to induce happiness. So we like just collected all the happiness um, studies we could find. And then we, we created this kind of tongue in cheek like piece where you would enact it. So for instance, a study shows that if you hold a pencil in your mouth for 60 seconds, you rate your mood as higher than if you Mm. don't, because you activate the zygomatic muscles, which are the same muscles as smiling. And sometimes you see this in marathons, like people who are in a lot of pain on the 20th mile, they force themselves to smile so that their body... They just like break out a... I thought you meant they break out a pencil (laughs) suddenly and start fighting. (laughs) (laughs) That would probably work too. But like the idea is that you fool your body into thinking that it's okay because you're like activating the happy circuit um so we like yeah we we created this spa and we said that you know if traditional art is all about using um an aesthetic artifact such as a painting to communicate an idea or an emotion now the future of art is science in which we just program the emotion directly into your body so like we literally like flashlights um had them swallow placebo pills they had a special device that propped open their mouth into a smile we electrocuted their thumbs into a thumbs up sign <laughs> like so this is uh, one person lying down in a seat surrounded <laughs> exactly. by scientists, people dressed in lab coats <laughs> right. that are forcing you to be happy through 
manipulations of both your physical body and your emotional self, right? That's what's going on here. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And it was a performance and it was tongue in cheek. And we were actually shocked that people were willing to do this because, um, you know, we're like, studies show that placebo pills work, even though you know it's a placebo, now swallow this pill. And people just swallowed this pill. It could have been kind of like any pill, but um, it was a placebo pill. And our hope, you know, like, so the participants, of course, the participants that volunteered to do this were already relatively extroverted and, um, you know, looking to have new experiences. So I think everyone had a fairly positive outcome. But our our hope is that work like this actually makes people question what happened to them and that hopefully after they get out of their chair they they wonder you know is that the way art is going do I want a simulation um like can happiness be programmed I think the conversations can range quite a bit right like it's it's interesting because um you know, I come from a very conservative Chinese American background where mental health was very stigmatized. And I really do believe in like getting help for psychiatric conditions um, when needed. So like I'm super pro mental health. And at the same time, a lot of my family totally doesn't believe in, in antidepressants and things like this. So I feel like this piece for me has both the lightheartedness of asking questions like can happiness be programmed, but also like kind of serious questions about um, how much can we influence our affect when we need to. So yeah, I don't know. It was a very fun performance and we definitely did want to, to ask these heavy questions in a lighthearted way. That's why we wore lab coats and we, I think we found a box of Google Glass at the lab that were like a few years old. So we all wore Google Glass. The sign of the sign of science. Google Glass. <laughs> the uh, sign of um, <laughs> yeah, like inspired technology. I don't know. <laughs> right. No, definitely. I feel like your work in some ways is sort of trying to quantify what it is to be human. Um, with all the, you know, that if we can make ourselves happy by, you know, wearing, a, biting on a pencil or listening to words that are known to make us happy, or, or if we can synthesize the smell of someone so that we can relive that smell all the time. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to like, see what it is to be human with your work? Are you trying to assign a numerical value to that? Or are you trying to kind of inspire conversations about what it means to be human? Mm-hmm. It's an insightful question, because I think it's something I struggle with a lot. Um, I think it's a pretty old philosophical question too, you know, like I feel like going probably way past Descartes, people were wondering whether um, humans can be quantified just by their materiality and their body or whether there's something such as a spirit that is beyond um, what is quantifiable. And I feel like these questions persist today um, when we think about, for instance, AI and whether we could simulate quote-unquote intelligence and what that is. I feel like my continued quantification of being human through my artworks is really an open question because it does make me very uncomfortable to imagine that I can be so easily understood and flattened into an algorithm. But at the same time, I kind of want to be open-minded to it if that's the like actual truth. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I also do wonder what that means. 
um, philosophically and existentially, like what does that mean for concepts like free will or, um, you know, I think the dangers of this kind of thinking is often that when we quantify certain sects or groups of people, then you get into issues of like racism or classism and things like that. So I don't know, it's kind of a complicated inquiry that I think I hope I'm posing more questions than I'm pretending to answer in many yeah. ways. Yeah. No, I think you are definitely. I mean, I think a lot about uh, looking at some of your pieces, just thinking, <laughs> just thinking about, oh, am I like these machines? Am I, am I just a drip of dopamine going? That's constantly happening when I get a, a like on this on this podcast <laughs> or on this, you know, on this uh, Instagram post, or you know, does my smell trigger some kind of memory for someone else? You know, it's these things that are kind of ephemeral, but I think you're making them physical and sculptural in some way. That's very interesting. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, as somebody who works a lot between the intersection between art and science, mm -hmm. what, what to you is the difference between art and science? Like, mm. how would you define what you're doing as an artist versus what you'd be doing as a scientist? Or is it, is it the same thing in some way? Hmm. I actually find a lot of similarities between the practices of scientists and artists. I feel like often there is a kind of initial question or urge or intuition to delve into something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, it's different, but I feel like most artists I know do have a sort of methodology in which they do a series of experiments and then they tease out what works and what doesn't. Um, of course, there's a lot of differences too. <laughs> like there's a lot of differences in the output and how you need to defend the different sets of work. Um, mm. But it's been interesting. How are those, how are they different in terms of how you defend them? So it's interesting because when I talk to a scientist, they're very precise with their language, right? Like um, they'll be like statistically six out of 10, blah, blah, blah. Like it's never just like um, so overarching. Like it's never like, um, eating yogurt is good for your microbiome <laughs> or right. something even more <laughs> sensational like uh, fecal transplants can cure obesity which is why what i think like generally media likes to publish they'll be like very careful like um studies show that men between the ages of 25 and 30 who have received a fecal transplant under these conditions blah 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 um right. and so it, it becomes a very precise um defense of a specific theory. Whereas I think, interestingly, I think artists, visual artists are also very precise. But the consumption of it is also very subjective. I don't know how to explain it. It's so interesting, because I always find it so wondrous that, like, a lot of people who, for instance, stand in front of a specific Louise Bourgeois piece, get the sense of whatever it is like that piece evokes like um maternal sacrifice or longing mm -hmm. or like um you mean one of her spider pieces um, or i was thinking of one of um one of the i'm thinking of a specific piece that is has a cage and mm -hmm. there's these like cloth dolls in them but yeah like a spider piece is a good one i guess like you go inside of it and you do feel this kind of looming presence that's both kind of scary but also protective at the same time like um 
so it's I don't know, not articulating this well. But no, you are. I mean, it's just interesting to, to hear how your brain works, I think. Maybe I'm trying to quantify your thinking in some way. Um, but yeah, I think it's always, I think it's super fascinating, you know, as someone, I'm from the art, art background. I don't have any science training whatsoever. So I'm always really curious how people mix these two things together. Yeah. And whether that starts with the science or or more of a visual image, you know, when I start making a work, it always starts from an image. But I think... I think a lot of people work conceptually and they're thinking, oh, you know, looking at uh, or, or thinking about a smell and what you could do with that smell or mm. uh, <laughs> thinking about, you know, just visually how happiness would be portrayed in a non-painting way. Yeah. <laughs> like, could we physically induce happiness in something? So does it start with the idea for you? Does it start with an image? Mm, I think it always actually starts with a feeling, like an emotion. Mm. So for the smell piece, um, I think I was just feeling a lot of heartbreak at the prospect of loss, or maybe right. I was already feeling the loss. Um, and so for me, often the emotion comes first, but I keep, I guess I have a weird little, um, or maybe lots of artists work like this, uh, kind of methodology or whatever. But I, so every time I read a paper that I find interesting scientifically, I put it in a database and I tag it <laughs> with, um, a certain note. So like, I don't think most artists do that. <laughs> I'm not sure most artists have a database of their scientific research that they tag with a note. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But... I, don't know. I don't know how other people work. But, um, so I like to read a lot of science papers and I find them very inspiring. But really, the artwork comes from a feeling. So if I'm like completely obsessed with a certain feeling, then I'll go into my database and then I'll look for all tags that I've tagged with logging or death wow. or, or something. And then I'll, I'll look through the research and be like, oh, maybe this is a good um, outlet for this specific feeling that I want to express right now. And so it's a really interesting back and forth because on the one hand, and it's interesting to me too, because like there are all these stereotypes, I think, of artists not being um, logical or good at math or mm -hmm. reasonable or I guess the same. Organized. Kind of or, yeah, no, it's true, but it is a stereotype. Same stereotypes for women, actually, I was just thinking. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but the work that I make and I, the work that a lot of artists I know, um, you know, it comes from a very emotional space, but then you actually have to put on a very logic cap um, and execute it. So it's always this kind of back and forth between the feeling of loss, for instance, and then going into a sterile lab and synthesizing the chemicals that are necessary to create the perfume um, and going through the protocol. And I was going to say the other thing that I find interesting when working with some scientists, I forget which um, plant scientist that I was talking to, but she said that she develops a feeling for the organism. Like, and it felt so similar to the way I think some artists work with their medium that she, after decades of working with a specific species, just kind of develops a secondary sensation related to it or something so I, yeah I, I feel that i mean i feel that way entirely when you're especially when you're working with digital artwork where you have yeah. to maintain it you feel like you're almost the parent of that artwork like right you're over time you have to kind of nurture it and update it and i always feel this tremendous loss if i sell a work which sounds so silly because like no, artists want to sell work but then you know once it's gone you're like well where did where did that go where did all those feelings go in a way totally uh, yeah or even when I show a piece, sometimes it feels like this release of tension and energy, you know? Um, 
Mm-hmm. But talking about feelings, uh, let's let's talk about your piece. What is the feeling behind mind-controlled sperm? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. So maybe describe what that is for people who don't know what it is. Um, this one's so close to my heart. So the year that Donald Trump got elected, um, right before he got elected, he said he was on camera being recorded saying, grab them by the pussy. Mm-hmm. And so many people I know were completely infuriated. And I was actually in so much shock when he became elected. And I was really devastated because I was thinking, you know, outside of all of the policies that he will enact as president that could be damaging for decades, like just him as a symbolic figure to young women, you know, that um, the future president or the president could say such um, anti-female remark (laughs) and Mm -hmm. still be elected. I just found it really troubling. So I really wanted to make a piece of artwork to respond to this. Um, And I was taking a class called How to Grow Almost Anything at the time. And I was learning about uh, something called galvanotaxis, which is a phenomenon by which single-celled organisms such as paramecium will swim directionally according to an electric field. So like there were some researchers at Stanford who made a game of Pong with paramecium, like sending them left and right, (laughs) up and down based on these electric fields. And I don't know, it was just like this moment and I was sitting in this class and I was like, I wonder if this works with sperm and what this would mean symbolically for women to control sperm. Um, because, you know, there's such a long history of males controlling female bodies and female reproductive rights. So I went home and asked my husband for a sample (laughs) and literally like made a little electric field under my microscope and lo and behold, it it worked. Um, As with anything in biology, it's not like an electron that behave or, you know, it's not like a LED that can turn on and off at will. So I would say like, 60 to 70 percent of sperm will swim accordingly um and so the piece is a a performance artwork in which a woman controls the movement of sperm with her mind she wears an eeg headset and depending on um her brain waves she can send them left right up or down and you know it sounds super absurd and crazy but i was really you know, trying to create this piece as a provocation to kind of highlight how absurd the regime of biopolitical control over female reproduction has been. Um, Yeah. yeah. So it had a lot of (laughs) like, I don't know how it got picked up, but Fox News like featured it for like a hot second. And then I got all what, what was the Fox <laughs> News reaction? Yeah. What was that reaction? After like? that, like every day in my inbox, it would be all of these men emailing me being like, men have been able to control sperm for uh. centuries and <laughs> you're not doing anything innovative. Like read it or like the interpretation was so crazy. So they explained, <laughs> they mansplained your own artwork to you. That, that, um, <laughs> but I also have, a lot of really wonderful reactions too from um, women saying that um, it, it felt actually really empowering because I think for most women, you know, like for me, for instance, I had been taking an oral contraceptive for like a decade and I feel like there's so much anxiety for women to kind of um, 
mediate their bodies and their own hormones to try to not get pregnant. So there's like some kind of released and able to control this thing that is usually so uncontrollable. And then it was really interesting talking to some men who are like, wow, that that made me feel really violated and it's not even in my body. Hmm. Um, so there is this kind of maybe embodied empathy in a weird way. Um, and the piece, is it done as a performance or can anybody, I mean, do you have one specific person who's controlling the sperm with their mind? The, the, the sperm are enlarged and projected in front of the performer, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if you want to call them a performer or not, sure. but um, um, just for people to understand how it sure. looks. So um, in the filming of it, there's um, someone wearing an EEG headset, which is like a headset that measures electrical activity in your head, um, who's sitting right behind a giant circular projection that is connected to um, what you would see under a microscope. And it is designed to allow anyone to do this, but it takes a training period because of the EEG. So um, without going into too many details, an EEG measures the electrical activity on your scalp, um, which kind of reflects what might be happening in your brain. But each person is kind of unique. So for me, so like you would have to go through a training period of 20 minutes where you literally think left, 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 left. Mm-hmm. And then the computer learns um, what your brain looks like when you think left. Um, so an easier way might be like for the, it to kind of learn how you feel when, uh, what your brain looks like when you are relaxed versus when you're attentive, um, which is what the, the performer in the video is doing. So it's been interesting because I tried to show it a few times. It's a very difficult piece to show because first of all, it could be a biohazard to have live sperm in a gallery. Mm. Um, and then secondly, there's a training period in which if you just walked off the street, you would have to dedicate like a good 30 minutes of your life to, um, teach the computer what your brain is thinking. And then there's the aspect of it being, um, biological, which is not, uh, kind of like as kind of, if this, then that kind of logic gates. Um, so there is some kind of dynamic in which, um, the sperm will swim left and right, but like within a kind of range of buffer of after you've thought it because the fluid dynamics don't allow for like a complete reversal of fluid motion (laughs) suddenly. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but it's, it inspires these conversations that I think are so interesting. Like just the fact that you've gotten such a range of reactions to it. And to me, that like is the goal of art just to have people question themselves and question what it means to be human and question who has control over these existing systems. Um, So I find it super interesting. Um, what, what are some of the bigger questions that you're grappling with today, um, outside of the works that we've talked about so far? Um, yes, wait, uh, about that last piece, I had one of my thoughts. Um, sure, sure, please. It also, while I was doing the research for that piece and also part of, I think that piece was also just a kind of challenge and question what we thought is quote unquote natural when it comes to gender. Um, because I think a lot of gender discrimination comes from like, that's just the way it is naturally. Like people will say like women are just, of course, like totally untrue things. Like women are just not good at X, Y, Z or women are just inherently X, Y, Z. And so I think in doing that piece in this kind of biological way, I wanted to kind of turn it on its head and question what is possible. Um, Yeah. Also, like just in the research itself, it was so interesting to see how gendered 
um, medical literature is because like I would literally be reading scientific papers about sperm and it would be like the language would literally say something like and then the heroic sperm <laughs> makes the journey <laughs> no. to the egg and if she's not fertilized then she sloughs off like garbage and you're like oh my god <laughs> this is so not neutral um anyway <laughs> no, I think about that too I work a lot with um, motion capture data and it seems that all motion capture data is totally sexist and I don't understand why this is it's yeah. like every it's like every single you know female in quotes motion capture data is like a sexy pose and yeah. then the male poses are like with their arms crossed and I'm just like who is recording because someone has to be recording this data so right. it's whoever's creating these systems in place like whoever's writing these scientific journals that's making the that's <laughs> trying to form the way our culture looks at gender right it's just a, such a bizarre thing but I'm glad that you're <laughs> it's it's so nice to see an artist who's challenging all of this um and working with technology too to do so you know technology and science fields that technically people always think of as these male dominated fields. Um, and, and yet, you, you know, it's just, it's just a completely different way of looking at uh, mm -hmm. some of these fields. Um, yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to science technology as a quote unquote medium, because I think, I mean, there's certain things that are in question, but like, I think in general, societally, we do trust these, um, I don't know if I should call them regimes, but like mm -hmm. we trust the authorities of tech in a way. So I feel like if you make a certain kind of statement through this, then or I guess another way of saying it is technology can perpetuate certain gender norms, like the way every AI avatar is a sexy woman. <laughs> right. Um, and then so when if, you know, Google or Apple were to release a non-female obedient Siri, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that it's another like kind of subconscious way to challenge certain cultural norms. What have the reactions been from the scientific community to your work? I know that sometimes there's a tension with artists mm. that work with science. Um, do you, is there a certain way that the reactions have been or sure. leading towards? I must admit that I'm very lucky in that I've had very positive um, collaborations and interactions with scientists. I think that it helps because I make it from the get-go that I'm not a scientist and I'm not an expert in the field. So that allows me to ask really dumb questions without feeling too much like an idiot um, and to have really open, non-judgmental conversations. And I think it's been fairly positive too because, you know, I think to become an expert in the field of science, you do have to kind of be very narrow in your expertise. So you might actually spend a decade on a specific protein or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But as an artist, like I feel like um, for better or worse, it's kind of like my job to zoom in and out constantly. So I'm always um, matching disparate ideas together. And so I think the, in, the collaborations I've had have been very rich for the scientists as well, because I bring in such a weird hodgepodge of, um, slightly tangentially relevant stuff to their field. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you work with a scientist, are they super excited about working with an artist? Is it, is there an interesting relationship that happens there? I mean, mm. are you, do you kind of inspire each other in terms of the way it changes your work? I would hope it, the <laughs> inspirational is mutual. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I usually find my matches through grants. So the scientist, um, him or herself, has applied to work with an artist. So usually that is um, already a very open 
like mutually curious relationship because that person has decided that they wanted that for at that time in their career. Um, and the, this, I find that the best scientists to work with are board scientists who are like kind of just, <laughs> you know, just got tenure or like just finished right. their postdoc or whatever. And they have a, some amount of free time to kind of be curious. And I think those are really good um, interactions. And a lot so of if there are any yeah. if there are any board scientists listening right now, find an artist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it'd be great to have more collaborations between art and science. And I think, you know, that's what this podcast is somewhat about, you know, just artists mm-hmm. that work outside of their traditional medium uh, or what we consider to be a traditional medium for art. Um, all right. Well, before we go, first of all, this has been super exciting and it's great to talk to you. I could talk to you for another <laughs> three hours, probably. <laughs> um, but before we go, we have a tradition here on State of the Art where we rapid fire off some questions to our guests. Oh, uh, these are just these are just really quick questions. Don't overthink them at all. Okay. The first thing that pops into your mind, there's no wrong answers whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I try to tailor them a little bit to the guests. So your first question, Annie, is what is your favorite smell? Oh, <laughs> so it's funny. Um, well, it it was my husband's smell, um, and I made a whole bunch of perfumes, like from after he worked out, to after we had sex, <laughs> to like after we had a fight, like all the whole portrait spectrum. <laughs> but funny enough, after I got pregnant, I I can't stand the way he smells right now. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Um, Did wait? So you would fight, and then you would say like, okay, wait, hold on, just give me some of your your sweat really quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, he. Still complains about this occasionally. I had him wear um, a specific series of T-shirts that uh, were like I had sewn special cotton pads under the armpits and stuff, like to collect samples. And um, he, he, I don't know. Yeah, he's still a little huffy about it because there were like a whole series from those T-shirts where I didn't synthesize them in time and they molded. And he was like. I wore these uncomfortable t-shirts for you to collect my smell and you let them go to waste. And anyway, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Here's question number two. Uh, if you could engineer one memory oh. that you could then have for yourself, that you could step back into uh, throughout the rest of your life, what would that memory be and why? Hmm. You know, it's probably kind of cheesy and it hasn't happened to me yet, but mm-hmm. I think it'll probably be the first time I meet my daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like um, everyone I talk to says that becoming a parent is such a profound moment. And I also find it so interesting because the literally the moments leading up to that profound moment are so incredibly painful, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that our evolutionary circuits make you completely forget immediately afterwards and all you feel is euphoria. Um, and I feel like perhaps that would get me through some really tough times. Yeah. Well, Annie, thank you so much for everything. Uh, this has been a really interesting uh, interview with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the show that's coming up or any other products that you have coming up that people could check out? Um, so the Festival of Impossible is in San Francisco, literally next week, and Gabe is in it. And um it's a bunch of artists exploring what it means today and in the future to have this kind of human machine interaction. And I'm thinking about the future of pregnancy. Um, and I can't think of it. I think I have a few things going on, but I They're am secret. not supposed to share them yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. fine. That's exciting. How can people find you? Um, do you have like an Instagram people can follow you at? Uh, yes, it's just Annie Lou Studio. Um, A-N-I-L-I-U. Great. Thank you, Annie. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, uh, can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you. 
it was such a pleasure to talk to Annie Liu. Uh, she, she's doing such an incredible new forms of artwork that I hope it was interesting for you as well. And I hope you think a little bit about how our bodies are changing and are chemically wired by technology. Uh, as always, I'm Gabe BC uh, for State of the Art. You can find me at Gabe BC on most social media. State of the Art is created by Ethan Appleby, produced by Vanessa Wilson, and our audio engineering is done by Weston Stevens. Stay tuned next week for more adventures into the world of art and tech. See ya.